there, and welcome to episode 9 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your wild and crazy host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about episode 16 of season 1, Face of the Dragon. I'm also going to be talking about the pilot episode of the 2010 Hawaii Five-O series. Why am I doing this, you might ask? Well, because of the way the season played out and the way I arranged things and because I have a couple of special episodes that I want to do, it kind of fell out that there's going to be two episodes where there's only going to be one Hawaii Five-0 episode discussed. So to fill out this episode, I decided I could talk a little bit about the pilot of the reboot because I've never seen it. I've seen some episodes of the 2010 Hawaii Five-0 I've seen all of the episodes that relate to the 1968 series, and I've seen all of the episodes that Larry Minetti was in. I don't have to explain myself. And I've pretty much watched it consistently since season nine premiere because they redid Cocoon, and so I went ahead and just started watching it because it's on Friday night and I have nothing better to do. And also, uh, starting this past season, season 10, they redid the schedule, so it's a lead-in to the Magnum P.I. reboot, which I've watched since the beginning, so it just makes sense that I spend my Friday evening in Hawaii. But still, there are a lot of episodes I haven't seen, and I haven't seen the pilot, so I thought it might be fun to do a little compare and contrast with the 2010 reboot pilot and the 1968 series pilot. So now that we have all the explanations out of the way, let's go to Hawaii. What have we got, Chet? Trouble, boss. Big trouble. Who is he? No identification on him. Passengers on a tourist bus said a man on a motorcycle lifted his wallet. Any description on the cyclist? Practically nothing. He was wearing a helmet and a visor. Anybody get a license plate? No. What about HPD? They're on it. Hello, McGarry. Good morning, Doctor. Okay, let me have it. You see before you a dying man. Rare specimen, McGarry. Haven't seen one like it in 25 years of practice. I'd hardly believe my own eye. All right, Doctor, come on. What is it? Voodoo, poison dart? What's the mystery? I said rare, McGarry. Tribubonic plague. Bubonic plague? Are you absolutely sure? Without question, there's no telling how many people he could have infected before he was found. That's an assumption, Doctor. True, but an epidemic could sweep these islands like wildfire. What's the hospital doing? Inoculating everyone they can find. What about the passengers and driver of that bus? Got him, but he could have infected dozens before he found him. It's a happy thought. Episode 16, Face of the Dragon, air date January 22nd, 1969. Directed by Richard Benedict. This is 4 of 11 for him. And written by Robert C. Dennis. This is the first of six episodes for him. A tour bus stops for a photo op and a couple of tourists encounter a seriously ill man who first collapses in the street and is then robbed by a man in full helmet riding a motorcycle. Steve and Dano arrive at the hospital to find the man in isolation and that HPD is looking for the motorcyclist. The doctor informs Steve that our unfortunate victim's day is actually much worse. He has bubonic plague. With Chin Ho's help, they try to question the poor guy, but he dies without telling them anything. Steve and Dano check out the spot where the man collapsed. HPD found his car and they run the plate which leads Danny and Chin Ho to examine the man's house while dressed in the latest hazmat gear. While they search, the motorcyclist calls but hangs up when Danny answers. Curious. 
Dr. Alexandra Kemp is informing the governor and other bigwigs about the plague when Steve shows up late and asks her if two particular drugs could be used for the plague. They aren't the go-tos, but they could be used. It turns out both drugs were found in the dead man's place, and since you need a prescription to get them, someone was treating him without reporting it. The governor then organizes everyone to respond to the plague threat without causing a panic. Dr. Kemp examines Chin Ho while Danny and Kono tease him for being a bit of a hypochondriac. Dr. Kemp says that her professional diagnosis for all of them is fatigue before giving them all inoculations. Chin Ho and Danny then have a laugh at Kono's expense. Back at the office, Steve wants Kono looking at ships that have come from plague-prone areas, Chin Ho working with HPD to find the motorcyclist, and Danny looking into pharmacies to find out where the plague drugs came from. On TV, Dr. Kemp is warning the public about a new strain of Asian flu and telling anyone experiencing symptoms to report to the hospital immediately. Elsewhere, a man named Jardine is watching the broadcast when his son Kim comes into the living room saying that a noise at the neighbor's house woke him up. Jardine goes to investigate and after nearly being run down by the motorcyclist, finds his neighbor Chu dead. Steve and team arrive at Chu's place and Steve talks to Jardine and his son. Jardine didn't know the man well, but his son used to run errands for him. The boy, however, refuses to talk to Steve. Chu died of the plague, so Jardine, Kim, and the uniformed officer that went into the house are packed off to the hospital to be examined and inoculated. It is also discovered that Chu worked at the Hawaiian Institute of Technology. At the hospital, Jardine tells Steve that Kim was supposed to run an errand for Mr. Chu, but didn't. There was supposed to be a message for the man in a parking lot, but Kim couldn't retrieve it. Steve takes the boy there, and he shows Steve the post that the message is hidden in. The boy couldn't get the top off. Steve, however, has no trouble and inside finds the plans for a secret program called Cane Break, a breakthrough in infrared detection. Some old-fashioned detective work pays off. Kona finds a ship from Hong Kong that may have brought the plague over, but has only one listed passenger, Horace Sibley, whom they need to find. Danny has also found the pharmacy that the drugs were obtained from and learns that they were delivered to the house of one Shin Yu Lan, ordered by a Dr. Ku. His nephew, Louis, answers the door and reluctantly agrees to let them see his uncle, who has no knowledge of anyone in the house being sick or needing the drugs. When they question Dr. Ku, they find out that he's the live-in physician at the house since he's Shin Yu Lan's grandson and that the drugs were there for the cook, whom he was treating for carbuncles. The motorcyclist ditches his bike over the side of a cliff and then shoots the man who takes a break from his paintings to tell him that, hey, he could have given it to him. The motorcyclist then ditches his gloves and helmet, revealing himself to be Louis Shen. Horace Sibley is brought in for questioning and rather glib until confronted with the fact that he might have been exposed to the plague and, oh yeah, here's your travel history and bank accounts too and they don't really jibe with your professional occupation. He doesn't admit to anything, but he does end up quarantined. Another plague victim turns up, collapsing after mailing something. Dr. Kemp is fairly certain that she'll make it. She also informs Steve what the girl was able to tell her. She and her fiancé were smuggled into the country by Horace Sibley. They were held in the ship separately, and when she was finally let out, she was told that her fiancé had already left. His name? Lu Shin, a.k.a. Louis Shin. And he looks nothing like the Louis we know. Does this episode sound like a lot? Well, it is, and not really in a good way. There is a lot going on here, and it's almost too much because you have a plague storyline layered with a spy storyline, and it's all really kind of unnecessarily confusing. 
So we start off the episode with our ill man sitting at a park bench when this tour bus comes up and everybody gets off so they can take pictures of the bay. And it looks like that the sick man is trying to go to the tourist for help, but he collapses. And the motorcyclist who there's actually a really great shot where you see the man collapse from the motorcyclist's rearview mirror. And so he turns around and he comes back and he steals the guy's wallet and then takes off. So you start off with this really good question of what the hell just happened? We get the guy in the hospital, he's in isolation, and uh, the people in the room can talk to the people outside of the room through a basically a, a mic. And the doctor tells him, yes, he's dying of bubonic plague, which surprises Steve and company. So Chin Ho tries to question him in Chinese, and it's, he responds, the man responds, but he really can't say anything and he ends up dying. So they start off on this idea that this guy is sick and some idiot decided to capitalize on the man's illness and steal his wallet. So they're working with HPD on that. They're trying to figure out who the man is because he can't tell them his name and where he came from. So they find his car, which also they kind of like fence off because obviously plague. And find out when they run the place that it belongs to a guy named Harvey Fong, who is a photographer. And Chin Ho and, and Danny go over to his house, and they are dressed in... It's supposed to be hazmat gear, but it... I mean, it's 1969 hazmat gear, and I don't know exactly how advanced the hazmat suits were back then. What it looks like is hot suits, what they would use um, in extreme heat and extreme temperatures. There's an episode of The Green Hornet in which a guy spends most of his time dressed in one of those, and that's what it made me think of. I have no idea how well those would keep out germs, if they can keep germs out as well as heat, but Danny and Chin Ho both looked quite fetching. Anyway, they're going through his house, they find the drugs, and then the motorcyclist calls the house and hangs up when Danny answers. And so it's, again, it's curious, why the hell would this guy rob somebody, and then call him up. It makes no sense. We're then introduced to Dr. Alexandra Kemp while she's informing the governor and the military and public health and a few other people because Steve called, asked, Steve asked for this meeting and then he comes in late, as you do. And she's informing all of these people about the plague and how the plague works and what they need to do to contain it. And Steve asks her about the drugs that they found at Fong's place. Just one question, Doctor. Would you recommend chloramphenicol or chlorotetracycline in cases of plague? Well, streptomycin is the drug of choice, but the drugs you named would be a valuable supplement. You're well informed, Mr. McGuire. So was the dead man. We found three capsules of each in his room. You've identified it? Yes, sir. Harvey Fong, age 42, oriental photographer, lived up in Kaimu Key. One other question, Doctor. Are those drugs available without a prescription? No. Why do you ask? Because somebody treated Fong for plague without reporting it to public health. Well, if you're implying he was treated by a qualified doctor, Mr. McGarrett, I doubt it. What do you doubt it, Doctor? Because it would be irresponsible if not criminal. Yes, it would. And she gets really kind of offended about the idea of a doctor, that Steve is insinuating that a doctor would lower themselves to prescribe drugs off the record. Like, apparently she has never met any other doctor in her life. But also the way that Steve kind of smiles at her, I'm like, is he flirting? Is is this negging? What is this? Is he kind of flirting with her? That's did he enjoy that pissing her off? I don't I don't understand this particular human interaction. But anyway, the the governor's main concern is 
containing this plague and alerting the public without making a big deal and causing a panic. And so that's when they came up with the idea of using, calling it a new strain of Asian flu. And Steve, and this is quite important to later in the plot, Steve makes a point of telling his team and telling everyone else, we do not use the word plague. When we're, we're investigating this, we're not talking plague. We don't use that word. So since the guys have already been working in this situation, Dr. Kemp goes ahead and examines them. And it's, it's a funny scene because Danny and Kono are teasing Chin Ho about being a bit of a hypochondriac. Can you mention any other complaints? Dizziness, said he felt hot and cold at the same time. Trouble hearing and breathing too. Any history of anxiety in his family? Only when I see a needle. He worries a lot when he breaks open a fortune cookie. His temperature is normal, so is his pulse, and no swelling in the glands either. So what's your diagnosis, doctor? Well, gentlemen, when is the last time any of you had a good rest? Well, the last time McGarrett Blue Chaps was, uh, <laughs> well, come to think of it. And when was the last time any of you had dinner, sitting down? I thought so. Well, you asked for my diagnosis. In a word, fatigue. We've been busy, Doctor. You've been running 24 hours a day, Mr. Williams, and you're running yourselves into the ground. Take off your jackets, roll up your sleeves. If you won't take the advice I give you, you'll take the protection I give you. Your turn, Mr. Williams. Kono gets his shot and makes the biggest fuss about it, kind of winces and grimaces, and the guys have a good laugh at his expense. When they get back to the office, Steve puts Kono at the docks looking for ships that have come in from plague-prone areas. He has Chin Ho working with HPD to find this motorcyclist so he doesn't spread it further and also, you know, bust the guy for lifting a wallet off of a dying man. That's just so rude. And then he has Danny looking into pharmacies to see who might have prescribed these drugs without reporting it. And the thing is, is that the drugs could be used for other things. So it would be very easy for the doctor to like call in this prescription and not report it because the drugs aren't solely used for the plague. So for the most part, up until this part, the episode seems pretty straightforward in that we're trying to contain the plague. And that's pretty important and it's something that Fivo would be in on. And then we get to the next layer. So Dr. Alexander Kemp goes on TV to warn the public about the this new strain of Asian flu, urging people to contact their physicians or go to the hospital if they're experiencing symptoms. And we see a man named Jardine watching this broadcast. And his son Kim comes in, complaining that somebody was banging on the door next door at Mr. Chu's house, and it woke him up. So Jardine goes out to investigate. The motorcyclist nearly runs him down. He goes in the house looking for Mr. Chu and finds him dead. Obviously, the police are called. Fibo shows up. The guy's dead of the plague. That's problematic. And he's been dead for a couple of days. Because they make a point of saying the incubation time is like 
I think five to six days or three to six days, something like that. And Mr. Chu's been dead for a few days, so it gives us a ballpark of about when the plague problem started. We also find out that Mr. Chu worked at the Hawaiian Institute of Technology, so there is no telling how many people he could have possibly infected just by going to work. As Danny said, the guy could start an epidemic all his own. And we also find out from Jardine that Kim would run errands for Mr. Chu. And it's not until they go to the hospital and get their inoculations that Kim confesses that he was supposed to run an errand for Mr. Chu, but didn't. And that errand was to go pick up a message at the parking lot, I think at the Institute. Mr. Chu had asked him to go and fetch it because he was sick and was very emphatic about not telling anyone, which is why he didn't tell Steve in the beginning. And he said that he did go to the parking lot, but he couldn't get the message. So he takes Steve there and shows him because it's like these parking lot posts that you see. And he said he couldn't get the top off of this post, but it's Steve McGarrett. He can do anything. So he gets the top off the post and finds these plans in there for something called cane break. And a quick discussion with a couple of scientists and the military reveals to us that cane break is a breakthrough in infrared detection. This is cane break, known only to military intelligence and a few scientists. It's a major breakthrough in infrared sensory perception. It does everything the eggheads claim for it. A night sight detector? Right. Being used in Vietnam? Model T's are being used in Vietnam. Those have to be super cooled with liquid nitrogen, and even then the noise to signal ratio is too low. But this baby's solid state requires no cryogenic refrigeration, and it'll pick up a warm body signal of a tomcat at 100 yards in a pitch black jungle. If it field tests, they'll miniaturize it for use in helicopters. You realize every specification is top secret. Not anymore, Colonel. Where did you get this? How much does it give away? With two preliminary sketches, you could build one. So now it seems we have some espionage in with our plague problem. At the docks, Kono finds a ship that came from a plague area I believe somewhere in Hong Kong, and finds out the only registered passenger is a guy named Horace Sibley. So obviously they need to find him because he could have been exposed to the plague. There's also theories that other people could have been smuggled in on the ship. Danny also finds out that the prescription was called in by a guy named Dr. Ku, and it was delivered to the house of Shin Yulen. I believe I'm saying that correctly. And so they go to the house to inquire about it. Lewis answers the door and at first is reluctant to let him them talk to his uncle because his uncle is quite old. But finally relents when he sees that they're police, brings them in the house, goes to explain to uncle what's up. Then they can go and talk to him for a few minutes. My uncle will see you for five minutes. Is your uncle sick? <laughs> Not at all. Merely so old that his time is precious. Somebody else in the house has been sick? I was not aware of that. That was a question, Mr. Shen. How many people live here, Mr. Shen? All matters concerning the family must be handled by the head of the family. Will you come this way, please? Mr. Shen. Garrett, Williams, Hawaii 5 
there is a branch of the state police, uncle. Police? Why do they come to my home? Concerns a man named Harvey Fong. You know him, sir? No. And perhaps someone else in the family? I will inquire when they gather this evening. Well, for many reasons, we have to know now. It's very urgent, sir. Two prescriptions were filled and delivered to this address by the S&C Pharmacy on June 18th. Who was the medicine for, and what was the nature of the illness? The world has changed since I was young. Then an illness was the private affair between a patient and his physician. Now here's the thing. Shin Yulan is played by David Opatashu. I have no idea if I'm saying that right. I don't believe he is Asian or Pacific Islander, but if he is, apparently he's not Asian or Pacific Islander enough because we once again have a case of yellow face makeup. You can tell he's doing the same fake eyelids that they did on William Kaluva back in the episode by the numbers. And he's also wearing what looks like to be too much bronzer. And the thing is the way his outfit is, and the way the makeup is, you can literally see where the makeup stops. I'm not that big into makeup. I don't do the contouring or anything like that, but I love watching those videos. And the one thing that I've learned is you really gotta blend that neck and the neck is not blended. You can see the very definite cutoff of the too much bronzer that they're using to make him look more Asian. It's really obvious. It's really unfortunate and probably made even more apparent because Dr. Ku and Louis Shin are both played by Asian actors. So you can't tell me no one was available. Anyway, they go have a chat with the aging uncle who has no knowledge of anyone being sick. They go and talk to Dr. Ku, who ends up being Shin Yulin's grandson. And as he says, there are 14 people living in this house. And so he's kind of the live-in doctor for everybody. And then explains that, yes, he did order, order this medicine, not for the plague, but because the cook has carbuncles. He was laughing about it. I had to look up what carbuncles are. It turns out it's basically like a cluster of boils. I wouldn't be laughing about that. That sounds painful. And I definitely wouldn't be laughing at the cook's expense. Not when he could poison my food or forget to put seasoning in it. So, so far we have the plague. We have espionage, and we have this ancient Chinese family involved in all of this. But it seems that none of it really connects them to Arthur Chu or to the first dead man, Fong. So then we see the motorcyclist approach a cliff where a guy is down the way a bit, painting the ocean, having a sandwich. He's a bit of a hippie looking guy. He watches as the motorcyclist shoves his bike off of this cliff. And when he sees him do that, he's like, hey man, you could have sold that or given it to me. And the motorcyclist just takes out a gun and shoots him and he falls off the cliff. Which he apparently survives long enough to climb back up and report what happened to himself before he died. That comes up later, but it was just like, it looked pretty definitive at the time is what I'm saying. Anyway... So the motorcyclist takes off his gloves, he takes off his helmet, and he, he chucks it all off the cliff, and it is Louis Shen. So now we do have our tie-in. The naughty nephew is obviously involved in some bizarre espionage circle. Okay, sure. Then we get to meet Horace Sibley, who is Uncle Fester. 
It's Jackie Coogan with hair and, well, with what hair he could grow and a mustache and a beautiful aloha shirt. So they talk to Horace and in their conversation with him, because he says he's an importer of items, mostly from Hong Kong. But in talking with him, they suggest that perhaps he imports more than that. Perhaps he's actually involved in smuggling humans as well. And though he won't exactly admit it, you kind of get the feel from him that he does. Who else was on that boat? No one. You can check the passenger list. Then somebody was smuggled in. Who was it? You certainly have a one-track mind, Mr. McGarrett. I just told you, and I'm telling you, there's a carrier of bubonic plague loose on this rock, and he's a red agent. Well, assuming that you're right, uh, do you have evidence that, uh, that I had anything to do with it? In the past year, you've made six trips between Hawaii and Hong Kong. A requirement of my business. And each time you sail aboard the Cub Soledado. Oh, yes, and each time I smuggle in a red agent. But he knows that 5-0 doesn't have any definitive evidence of that, and he's not going to give him any, even when they do come at him with the plague and his travel schedule and his multiple bank accounts and the deposits for $25,000 that repeatedly happen. He's not giving them anything. So Steve knows he can't really hold him, but he can put him in quarantine because we know he's been exposed to the plague, and that's how they detain him. Slight abuse of power, but actually pretty smart because the dude was exposed to the plague, so better safe than sorry. So now we have the plague, we have the espionage, we have Louis Shin involved in this espionage, and we also have Uncle Fester importing possible plague people. Are you with me so far? Well, then we see a new plague victim, a beautiful young girl who manages to mail something, mail a letter before she collapses. She ends up in the hospital and Dr. Alexandra Kemp treats her, informs Steve that she should live and tells Steve what she knows. She says that her name is Amy Sue and she was smuggled from Hong Kong with her fiance in this cargo ship, in the hold of this cargo ship. And they were separated into like, I think different containers with just enough food and water to make it through the journey. When she gets to port and they finally let her out, she says that her fiance, they, she was told that her fiance already left and he was on the mainland. And so she's been looking for him. The only thing that she had on her in her purse that might help is a picture of her fiance. Steve wants the fiance's name, so Dr. Kemp goes to get it and says his name is Shen Lu. Well, that's in Chinese. In Asian names, they often put the family name first. So if you flip it around, it's Lu Shen or perhaps Louis Shen. And the thing is, is that the Lu Shen in the picture is not the Louis Shen that we met at the house. How are you? Are you keeping up with all of this? It's a lot and it's a bit of a mess and it never really comes together cleanly because while the letter that Amy Sue mailed explains a lot and ties a lot together and gives our heroes what they need going forward to wrap up this case, which I'm not going to spoil for you, it all feels kind of too much. It reminds me of an episode of, of Green Hornet in which there was a lot going on and I'm like, it should have been two different episodes. This should have been two different episodes. There is enough here that we totally could have done a plague storyline, including having the first victim being robbed. 
we could have done all of that and it would have made for a very full, very satisfying episode of watching 5 working with public health to try to contain this outbreak. Then we could have had the espionage episode that involved the human smuggling and because that did fit together very well. It was actually quite clever how that did work. That could have been its whole ep- a whole episode on its own without the plague element and it would have been a satisfying episode. Mashing the two of them together left for a very confusing, unsatisfying episode. It has its moments, I'm not gonna lie. The plague aspect is very intriguing. The espionage aspect is quite intriguing. You get Steve kind of flirting with the doctor and he does so better later where it's actually kind of amusing and less wondering if Steve has ever talked to a human female before. Also, we have Steve with Kim, and you know how much I love Steve with kids because it's something that you don't think would work, and it always does, and he was very cute with Kim. And there's a great moment, too, when the doctor is is giving Kim his inoculation and trying to, to boost him up for it. Kim, now this is going to sting a little bit, but you're tough, aren't you? No. Oh, yes, you are. I know you are. Ready? And of course the guys ribbing Jinho and then ribbing Kono about the shot. And not to spoil too much, but at the end, we do have a bit of a dust up that happens and Jinho does get hurt a little bit, a minor, minor gunshot wound. And you get to see Steve be very concerned about one of his men, which is always so heartening to see. It definitely has its moments. It's not a total waste of an episode, but it could have just been so much better if they just separated and made it two different episodes. Ultimately, the stories just needed more room to play. The other bright spot of this episode is the guest cast because we had a lot of good folks show up and do their best with what they were given. As I said, Shin Yulan was played by David Apatashu. I'm still not sure if I'm saying that right. We'll see him in one more episode, so I get one more chance of getting his name right. He was Fred Kirsch on Dr. Kildare. He was Hator on the Secret Empire segment of Cliffhangers. He also showed up in Medical Center, the FBI, Ironside, Mod Squad, Star Trek, Time Tunnel, I Spy, Perry Mason, Voyage to the Mod on the Sea, Harry O, Kojak, Little House on the Prairie, Twilight Zone, Trapper John MD, Bionic Woman, Hardcastle McCormick. He showed up in the movies Torn Curtain, Beyond Evil, Cimarron, Death of a Gunfighter, and Party Girl. And he was in the TV movies DA Murder One, Incident in San Francisco, Conspiracy of Terror, and Conspiracy, The Trial of the Chicago Eight. Dr. Alexandra Kemp was played by Nancy Kovac. She was Queenie in a Joker two-parter of Batman. She showed up in things like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Burke's Law, I Dream of Jeannie, Perry Mason, I Spy, The Invaders, Star Trek, Bewitched, Get Smart, Mannix, Ellery Queen, and Cannon. She was Annie Oakley in the movie The Outlaws is Coming, which was a Three Stooges movie that had Mo, Larry, and Curly Joe Dorita. She was also in Marooned with Gregory Peck, Richard Crenna, Gene Hackman, and Lee Grant. She was in Tarzan and the Valley of Gold, Frankie and Johnny, which was an Elvis movie, Jason and the Argonauts, The Silencers with Dean Martin, Stella Stevens, and my beloved Victor Buono, and Diary of a Madman with Vincent Price. Dr. Leo Koo was played by Victor Sin Young. He was Hop Singh on Bonanza. 
He was also cousin Charlie Lee on Bachelor Father. He showed up in the 1959 Darren McGavin Mike Hammer series. He was in Thriller, Perry Mason, Mr. Ed, Man from Uncle, I Spy, The Wild Wild West, Here's Lucy, and Kung Fu. He showed up in the movies Flower Drum Song and Confessions of an Opium Eater. He was also Jimmy Chan, Charlie Chan's number one son, in a series of Charlie Chan movies that featured Sidney Toller as Charlie Chan. Louis Shin is played by Soon Tech Oh, who I love. We'll see him in seven more episodes. We've already seen him in an uncredited role in Cocoon. He was Lieutenant Torres on Charlie's Angels, I believe, during the last season. He showed up in I Spy, The Wild Wild West, Dan August, Search, Kung Fu, and Kung Fu The Legend Continues, Black Sheep Squadron, Different Strokes, Trapper John MD, MASH, several MASH episodes, Quincy, Heart to Heart, TJ Hooker, Magnum P.I., The A-Team, Airwolf, MacGyver, Murder, She Wrote, Baywatch Nights, and Stargate SG-1. He also appeared in the movies Mulan, Beverly Hills Ninja, Red Sun Rising, A Home of Our Own, and the Bond movie The Man with the Golden Gun. He was in the Airwolf TV movie as well as the TV movies Tailspin, Behind the Korean Airliner Tragedy, Manhunt, Search for the Night Stalker, Deadly Game, Cagney and Lacey Together Again, and The Return of Charlie Chan, which starred Ross Martin as Charlie Chan. As I said, Horace Sibley was played by Jackie Coogan. We'll see him in two more episodes. Of course, he is Uncle Faster from the Addams Family. He was also Stoney Crockett on Cowboy G-Men. That has got to be a thing. And he was Sergeant Barnes on McKeever and the Colonel. He also showed up in shows like Peter Gunn, Mr. Lucky, Andy Griffith, and the new Andy Griffith, Perry Mason, Family Affair, Wild Wild West, I Dream of Jeannie, Adam 12, Emergency. He was on Gunsmoke and the Gunsmoke spinoff Dirty Sally, The Brady Bunch, The Lucy Show, and Here's Lucy, and Barnaby Jones. He also showed up in movies such as The Prey, Cahill, U.S. Marshal, Human Experiments, and The Shakiest Gun in the West. And the TV movies, The Phantom of Hollywood, Lucy Gets Lucky, Halloween with the New Addams Family, and The Specialists. Jackie Coogan was a child actor who started his career with Charlie Chaplin. And he is also responsible for what's called the Coogan Act, which protects the earnings of child actors. Jardine was played by Herb Jeffries. We'll see him in three more episodes. He is a singer and sometimes actor. He was the voice of Freight Train on the cartoon Where's Huddles. He also turned up in I Dream of Jeannie and The Virginians. He did three movies as Bob Blake, including The Bronze Buckaroo, Calypso Joe, and Rhythm Rodeo. He also turned up in the TV movies Jarrett and The Cherokee Kid. Kim Jardine was played by George Awai. We'll see him in one more episode, and that's it. Colonel Tyler is played by Edward Sheehan. This is his third of 15 episodes overall. Our tour bus driver was Yankee Chang. This is the third of 17 episodes for him and the third of four episodes with him as a bus driver. Harvey Fong, our first plague victim, was played by Alan Tam. He showed up in two episodes of The Brian Keith Show. He also worked in animation layout. He worked on Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Tarzan, The Simpsons Movie, and The Princess and the Frog. Amy Sue was played by Hyluin Caraggio, and this is her only credit. We also have Newell Tarrant back as Doc, this time dealing with a momentarily alive patient instead of the corpses he usually deals with. We've already talked about our director, Richard Benedict. 
So let's move on to our writer, Robert C. Dennis. He wrote mostly for TV going back to 1950. He did 30 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, 22 episodes of Perry Mason, 19 episodes of the 1967 Dragnet, 14 episodes of 77 Sunset Strip, 4 episodes of Batman, All King Tut. He also did 5 episodes of Dan August and 3 of the Dan August TV movies. And he wrote episodes for The Wild Wild West, Bourbon Street Beat, Harry O, Emergency, Adam-12, Andy Griffith, Kojak, Cannon, Starsky and & Hutch, and Charlie's Angels. And that's it for Face of the Dragon. It's another one of those episodes that I'm not going to say you shouldn't watch it, but I am going to say temper your expectations when you watch it. Know that going in, you're going to be getting a confusing mash of two different storylines. That even though it does come together in the end, it still doesn't feel that satisfying because it is just so much. You can't really get a handle on the whole story because there is just so much going on and it is so confusing. Watch at your own risk. Or if you're like me, watch because you love Sunteco. You look bush, Doctor. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Only when I shave and I do that running. for the 2010 Hawaii Five-O reboot, aptly titled Pilot, aired on September 20th, 2010. It was directed by Lynn Weissman. The story was by Peter Linkoff, Robert Osi, hope I'm saying that right, and Alex Kurtzman. The teleplay was by Peter Linkoff. Just going to give you a quick summary and a little bit of detail about the episode. I don't want to get too in-depth like I do with the 1968 episodes just because um, I only watched this once. So, in the 1968 pilot, we meet Steve McGarrett and his team. The team is already formed. The task force already exists. They are the Hawaii State Police. We establish that they deal with high-level crime, big syndicates, espionage, that sort of thing. And we establish our reoccurring villain, Wofat. In the 2010 pilot, Steve McGarrett is still Lieutenant Commander Steve McGarrett in the Navy. And he is transporting a prisoner, who is Daryl from The Walking Dead. He gets a phone call from his dad, who is Death from Bill and Ted, saying that, oh hey, Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer is holding me hostage because he would like his brother Daryl, not his other brother Daryl, to be released. Or he's going to kill me. The caravan is then attacked because Spike apparently is really extra. And I don't understand why what he thought that was going to accomplish you mean just you know you would think just the hostage would be enough but no he's like i have your dad hostage and also i'm going to organize the caravan to be attacked i guess it was just an incentive for him not to fight back but unfortunately it's steve mcgarrett and he fought back and daryl ended up trying to escape and steve ended up shooting him and killing him which is unfortunate because spike then loses his shit and ends up killing dad so the pilot basically revolves around Steve McGarrett trying to capture the man who killed his father. 
When he arrives home for his father's funeral, the governor, who is Gene Smart, approaches him about forming a special task force to capture Spike. And at first, Steve is pretty pissy and he turns her down until he goes to talk to an old friend, Chin Ho Kelly, who in this incarnation of the series is working security somewhere at some like tourist venue. He apparently worked for HPD for 15 years and he was let go due to accusations that he was taking bribes. But anyway, so Chin Ho tells Steve that, hey, some new Howley from the mainland is working your dad's case, which doesn't settle well with Steve. So he goes to his dad's house and starts poking around. And that is where Steve meets Danny for the first time. You, hands up, don't move. Who are you? Who are you? I am Detective Danny Williams. Lieutenant Commander Steve McCarthy's my father's house. Put your weapon down right now. No, you I'm put your weapon down. Show me put your ID. Your, show me your ID right now. Not put my gun down. No, my. Use your free hand, take out your ID. Please, after you. At the same time? At the same time? Yeah, at the same time. Well, like on the count of three? Sure, okay, three's good. One. Two. Now, in this universe, Danny is established to be a, divor a divorced father, and the reason why he moved to Hawaii is because his ex-wife got remarried and moved to the island, so he followed along in order to be close to his young daughter, Grace. And we do see him with Grace at one point taking her to school, and it's quite a cute moment. But anyway, because of his encounter with Danny in his father's garage, which there's a car in there that's a it's an old Mercury that is definitely alluding to the old boat cars that they used to drive on the 68 series and it depended on who had sponsorship for that season what make it was but anyway he actually calls the governor right there in the garage because danny won't give him any information and says he'll do the task force and swears himself in and then later goes to danny's house and says hey i claim you as my partner because you were already working this case come on let's go so while in the 1968 version there's much more of a mentor-protege type feel to the relationship between McGarrett and, and Danny in the 2010 version. It's a little bit more antagonistic bromance type deal, which I have to admit. On the episodes that I've seen, it just annoyed the hell out of me. I have since warmed up to the way the dynamic plays out since watching the last couple of seasons. But when I was just watching like a couple of episodes, you know, just because they pertained to the 1968 series, it kind of got on my nerves. It's grown on me. It's grown on me. And I think I have that benefit now of going into it with that in mind. So the the initial dynamic in their meeting and the forming of their relationship plays out a lot better than I think it would have if I'd seen this back in 2010. Because it is very different from the original. Steve and Danny might have butted heads back then, but it wasn't anything quite like this. I mean, they get into a fist fight at one point, or well, they do get physical. And this is after Danny gets, he gets clipped. They go after a, an arms dealer because he's got ties to Spike and Daryl there. And when they go after him, he comes out shooting and Danny gets clipped in the arm. And Danny ends up having to shoot him because he takes a hostage and unfortunately eliminates any lead that Steve was looking for in his father's murder, which Steve doesn't take very kindly. And they kind of get into it and Steve ends up twisting Danny's arm his non-shot arm behind his back and when Danny finally kind of agrees to the way Steve is doing things and Steve lets him go Danny punches him in the face so a much different dynamic than what we had in the 1968 series 
You know, I think I, I think I might know why your wife left you. Really? Yeah, you're very sensitive. <laughs> I'm sensitive, huh? Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. think I'm sensitive? Well, a little bit, you know. When did you come to the conclusion that I was sensitive, huh? Was it when a bullet was tearing through my flesh? Is that when I seemed sensitive to you? Huh? I am really happy that you are not afraid of anything, okay? I'm glad that you have that G.I. Joe thousand yards there from chasing shoe bombers around the world, okay? But in civilized society, we have rules, all right? It's the unspoken glue that separates us from jackals and hyenas, all right? Jackals and hyenas. Yeah, animal planet, whatever, okay? The point is, rule number one, if you get somebody shot, you apologize! Because you don't wait for a special occasion, okay? Like birthdays, freaking President's hey, Day. Hey, man, I'm sorry, okay? I said I'm sorry. I'm sincerely sorry. That's what I was trying to tell you last year. When this conversation first started. Your uh, apology is noted. Acceptance is pending. You let me know now. Yeah, I'll let you know. So when they search this arms dealer's house, they find a woman tied up in a room, and it turns out that he also has connections to human trafficking. So there's a lot going on in this episode. We have Spike and Daryl doing terrorist things taking hostages, killing Steve's dad. We have some arms dealing happening because the arms dealer apparently is the one who supplied Spike with his gun. Then we have this human trafficking angle. Steve and Danny end up going to talk to Chin Ho because Chin Ho still has a lot of connections. He still knows a lot of people even though he's out of HPD. And Chin Ho says he can only help them so much because he had had been fired for uh, allegedly taking bribes. And so Steve asks if he did, and of course Chin Ho says no. And so he says, well, you're going to be part of our team now. We have adopted you. I guess that's all it takes to form a, a task force in Hawaii. But Chin Ho's backstory in this incarnation actually does have some roots in the 1968 series. There is an episode in which Chin Ho is accused of taking bribes. So there is a little bit of a tie-in there. Jin Ho ends up taking them to an HPD informant or former HPD informant, and it's Kamikona. Now, here's the thing. Every episode that I had seen prior to actually watching it on the reg, I have adored Kamikona. And then he shows up in the Magnum P.I. reboot as well. I love this guy, so it's really cool to see him from the very beginning, at the very beginning, in his little shaved ice thing and he is he is Kamikona through and through. He's always on the hustle and so when Chin Ho is asking about a name in human trafficking, it basically the deal that struck is that Steve and Danny have to buy shaved ice and a couple of t-shirts for like $200 and then stand outside in like the parking lot wearing the t-shirts to help advertise his business. Marvelous. But Kamikona comes up with a name and it's Sangmin. And so they look into Sangmin and decide, okay, they can get to him, but they need to have bait. And that's when Chin Ho comes up with his cousin, Kono. And of course, in the reboot, Kono is played by Grace Park. So small departure from Zulu in the original. But Kono is currently in police school at the police academy. She's like one week away from graduating. So they go to meet her. She was a former surfing champion and she ended up blowing out her knee. So becoming law enforcement is like a major career switch for her. And when we first meet her, Chin Ho takes Steve and Danny to the beach and she's surfing and some dude, I guess, crowds her wave and they both end up crashing. And so when she gets to the beach, she punches him in the face. I can kind of feel that. And of course, she is totally all in on playing bait for this. So they set up this surveillance thing and she goes to meet Sang Min and he suspects that she might be a cop and has her take off her dress so they can look for a wire. 
And there is no wire because of a special kind of surveillance. Chin Ho explained it to Sangmin once they captured him. But things kind of go south. Kono holds her own for the most part until the rest of the guys kind of come bursting in. They chase down Sangmin, who is an idiot and wrecks his car into a shipping container full of his human trafficking victims. So they free those people and take Sangmin to their headquarters, which looks nothing like what you see now. It's very empty warehouse looking. And they question him. And the interesting part of the questioning is that it also shows that Steve is willing to bend the rules and use excessive force to get the information that he needs. Not unlike the Steve McGarrett from the 1968 series, who will also use leverage when he can and abuse his authority a little bit whenever he can in order to get the bad guy. Ultimately, they end up convincing Sangmin to help them, which leads them to a freighter that Spike is going to try to escape on. And so Danny and and Steve get on that boat in a very interesting way. They just basically drive the squat car right up into it. And they go after Spike. And of course, there is that brutal showdown, great fight scene on top of shipping containers on this massive cargo ship. So the pilot episode of the 2010 reboot is very much an origin story. It's an origin story of the team. It's an origin story for all four of our main characters that we start off with. We even get an origin story for Dano's nickname. Okay. Gracie was three. She tried to say my name and all that she could say was Dano. That's all that came out. Dano. Okay? That's it? That's it. That's it. It's cute. Shut up. Whereas in 1968, we're in media res, coming in with the team already established. We're just establishing the basic characters that we're going to be dealing with because they didn't really give them a whole lot of backstory. So far in our journey through season one, Danny has gotten the most backstory because he was held hostage by Yafit Koto and the newsman needed some filler during the tense hours. So we definitely have some different character bases going on with the reboot. Steve is a Navy SEAL who grew up in Hawaii and is motivated by his dad's murder in order to create this task force. Dano is divorced with a kid who moved to the island from New Jersey. Chin Ho is a disgraced HPD officer. Kono is a former surfing champ who went to the academy after blowing her knee. So there are some significant differences, but there are also some similarities. Steve is still very much takes charge in command, my way or the highway type. Danny is still very much dedicated to getting the bad guy. Chin Ho is still that wise, connected guy. And Kono is still quite physical. Really, out of all of the four characters, probably Danny and Kono diverge the most from their originals because, obviously, we're starting in a different place with this Danny being divorced and with a kid and not being McGarrett's protege. And from what we saw with Kono, I have a slight issue with the way she was first introduced to us because obviously they wanted to show that she was super tough. So they had her punch that dude in the face, which like I said, I can relate. But then they turn around and when she's in the setup, the guy has her take off her dress and that is a huge telegraph of vulnerability. And I just, I feel like that could have played out a whole lot different. It just smacks of three men trying to write a woman. Plus, we didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with Kono out of out of the four. You really didn't get a good feel for her. Whereas, at least in the, the pilot episode of the 1968 version, we actually did get to hang out with Kono quite a bit and got a little better feel for him. 
So that's also part of, it's difficult for me to get a feel for Kono because we didn't spend that much time with her. So it's kind of hard to compare her, the original 1968 version. One of the other things I wanted to, to look at to compare, just for my own curiosity's sake, was the casting of everyone. So Steve McGarrett is played by Alex O'Loughlin. He was in Moonlight, The Shield, Three Rivers. And what's interesting, and he was about 33 years old when the pilot was filmed. In contrast, Jack Lord was about 47 when the 1968 pilot was filmed. That means he spent a majority of the series in his 50s doing all of this crime fighting. I think that's a little more impressive. I'm sorry, Alex. Danny Williams is played by Scott Kahn. He was in Varsity Blues, Oceans 11, 12, and 13. He was also about 33 when the 2010 pilot was filmed. I think he and Alex O'Loughlin, like their birthdays were like one right after another. In contrast, James MacArthur was about 31 when his first episode appeared because he wasn't in the pilot. So Full Fathom 5 would be his first episode that he appeared in. And he was about 31 when that one would have been filmed. So pretty close on the age there. And honestly, I thought James MacArthur was younger. He looks younger. Not saying that Scott Cotton looks old. You look fine, dear. Chin Ho is played by Daniel Day Kim, probably best known for Lost. He was also an angel and the Hellboy reboot. He was about 41 when the pilot was filmed, which I'm not convinced is accurate because he doesn't look that old. Meanwhile, Cam Fong was 50 when the 1968 pilot was filmed. So he spent the duration of his 50s fighting crime. Again, a little more impressive. Sorry, Daniel. And Kono, as I said, was played by Grace Park. She's probably best known for the Battlestar Galactica reboot, which I think was 2004. And she's currently on A Million Little Things. She was about 34 when the 2010 pilot was filmed. Meanwhile, Zulu was about 30 when the 1968 pilot was filmed. I thought he was older. Not a lot older, but I was sure that he was older than James MacArthur. And of course, the governor was played by Jean Smart, probably best known as Charlene on Designing Women. She was also in Watchmen and Legion. I'm not going to mention her age because we're not going to disrespect Charlene that way. But I will say that Richard Denning was 54, about 54 in his first appearance, which I believe was also in Full Fathom 5. And Jean Smart's a couple of years older. So that casting's pretty close age-wise. <laughs> And that's the 2010 Hawaii Five-O reboot pilot. I think as a pilot, it's pretty serviceable because it sets up several different things. We have the origin of the team. There's also some things that happen during the episode that is obviously stuff to play off of for later in the season. And we also have the arms dealing and the human trafficking. So you get the, the feel of, yes, this team will be dealing with bigger crimes as well. So as a pilot, I think it's serviceable. We get to meet all of the characters and establish our rapport. It's a little hard to compare to the 1968 pilot because it was a 90 minute TV movie. And also it is up against really stiff competition, at least in my head, because Cocoon is probably my favorite pilot of any series I've watched. So it's really hard to, to compete with that. But I think that the 2010 reboot did a really good job to set up for a very successful series. And I admit, I liked it. What do you want me to do with this one? And so concludes episode nine of Bookum Dano. Thank you so much for joining me for kind of a out of the norm episode. 
There will be a few more like this as we go along, so brace yourself accordingly. But in the meantime, if you want to find me online, you can do that at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find all of my Rerun Junkie posts, my regular blog posts, links to my Patreon, links to all of my published work. You can even buy me coffee if you want to. But if you need me coming at you in real time, 24-7, or at least when I'm awake and not at my day job, you can find me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So, remember to keep up to date on your plague inoculations, and if you want shaved ice and information, you go to Kamikona. Until next time, aloha.